welcome to the Amber Knight Superhero Podcast with Simo Suahemo. This show is your backstage pass to discussions with world-class influencers in the field of health and high performance. We bring you the selected tips and insights that you can use to upgrade your life and become unstoppable. We are live. Welcome to another episode of the Superhero Podcast. I'm your host, Simo Suahemo, and today I'm joined by a very special person, someone who is on a deep personal mission in a quite literal sense of the word, and also an overall inspiring human being who does take herself to new heights of human capability quite often in quite surprising methods. Kiki Bosch, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm super stoked, Kiki, because right now we're sitting in a a prehistoric neighborhood in Tallinn right before the Biohacker Summit in Tallinn, Estonia. And uh, I'd actually love to take off by returning to a story that you just told me about having a pretty deep near-death experience in a frozen lake. Like, how do you do this? Like, like how does it go? How, how does it feel to have a near-death experience in freezing cold water underneath ice? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, near-death experience feels not that nice, to be very <laughs> honest. But uh, no, yeah, it was a very interesting feeling, interesting experience afterwards. But yeah. So tell us what happened. Like, what was going on when you were under ice and nearly unconscious, if not completely unconscious, while attempting a mad feat on any level of, of human capability. Well, we were actually shooting a short film in Norway. It wasn't actually frozen water. It was just very, very cold between uh, four and six degrees. And we were shooting for sometimes 20 to 30 minutes at a time. But normally when I go into the cold water, I'm very focused on myself. I'm very focused on being inside myself. I normally always say as well, like when you're in the water, you really go within yourself. There is no way out. You really have to focus on yourself. But with this shoot, I needed to act. And that was something I wasn't really used to. I can withstand the cold for a very, very long time. But this acting part kind of needed a very conscious interaction. And besides that, I was kind of weighed down by six kilos of lead around my legs and around my waist to make my walk underwater appear as natural and as outside of the water as possible. So it was heavily weighed down, making it not, yeah, I couldn't come up to the surface on my own. So I had a safety diver to whom had to signal to come get me when I was out of air, out of breath. So yeah, that all adds layers to the complexity of being in water that cold. So it was a really, I would say the experience itself was so, so, so beautiful and so nice. But all these things that were different from my normal meditative state that I have, in the water to a more conscious acting and interacting with the environment. We had a boat, we had a dinghy. Uh, so I went outside of the boat and then immediately like dropped down to the bottom because it was so heavy. And it was between sometimes four to eight meters of depth. 
so it was really impossible for me to to come back up again. So I signaled to my safety diver when I was out of air and done with the acting. That being said, I also didn't have like a mask or goggles because it, again, needed to appear as natural as possible. So I had no idea where the cameraman was. I had no idea where the trees were because this was an underwater forest. So I really, I needed to walk in a certain direction, but sometimes I turned when I was going down. So it was a lot to think about while being underwater in water that cold was just very challenging. Yeah, and that led me to... Yeah, getting up and out of the water in an unconscious state at some stage. <laughs> You're an expert in cold exposure and in uh, techniques that do take you not only underwater, but very deep into the realm of uh, the possibilities of the human body and the human mind. I just saw a video or just saw the, tr the trailer that you showed me when we had just met in the cafe a couple of hours ago. And what I saw there is a woman... Uh, walking without any equipment on the bottom of a frozen lake. But what else do you do except for being Ariel in, in, in very, very extreme <laughs> conditions, which usually are associated with danger and uh, pushing the human capability to the limit? I think I kind of made the, um, yeah, the fray diving into my own mission and also into my own business to kind of have the freediving that I do be a translation for many other things in life. So I use the extreme sports to kind of teach people what they're capable of. Of course, as well, as you know, through the Wim Hof method, through the Wim Hof breathing, and literally putting people into an ice bath and having them experience what it is to kind of, I call it sometimes forced meditation, because... You can't fight nature. You can tense up like we all do when you get into the water that's really, really cold. You have a moment where you clench your fist and then, oh, this is cold. But you really need to learn how to let go of that and relax your whole body and kind of accept the cold. And that's when the cold really becomes a teacher because when you see that state of kind of that first few seconds that you're trying to fight the cold and then you sink into a deeper relaxation and you know, okay, what I was trying to fight is actually not as bad and you can keep the calm inside in such an extreme environment. So it's, it's a really a teacher for so much more in life that you're maybe trying to fight, but once you let go and you really surrender to it, it might touch you. Of course, you feel still the cold on your skin, but it doesn't penetrate anymore. It's not a force that is inside of you. It's something that's outside. And I think, yeah, that's the most beautiful lesson of all, to learn that sometimes what you're trying to fight is really only out there. It's not part of you. It's not part of who you are as a being. You're also attempting a world record in underwater ice diving, not in the easiest of locations, I might add, we're going to talk about that too, but I would love to take a step back and hear your story and what took you to push yourself in, into the realm of the impossible or what most people consider 
very, very extreme. <laughs> yeah, well, I think my story definitely started a few years ago when I found myself in uh, quite deep depression and I really didn't want to live anymore. I felt really useless and I was blaming myself for a lot at that stage in my life. And then I saw a video of Wim Hof who said, try my method to become happy, healthy and strong. And at that moment, I thought, well, like, I really have nothing to lose here. And I considered myself always as a bull person. And I love the water. So I was like, okay, I'll, I will give this a go. But I never expected the goal to have such an impact on me. I thought, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this for the health benefits and all the happy hormones and the happy hormones are going to fix me. But it was way more the realizations that I got while being in the cold. The cold and the breathing all gave me kind of clues to who I was as a person. Once, yeah, again, once you're in the cold, there is no way out. You have to look within yourself. And for me, the cold kind of provoked all these other emotions. It provoked being happy, being sad, being like all these things that I really wasn't feeling anymore. And I learned time and time again that these are not things that define me. I'm not defined by sadness. I'm also not defined by happiness. They're all temporary emotions that we have or feelings that we cherish. And learning, going through this learning process was for me the most, yeah, beautiful thing of all learning who you are as a being in, in kind of the core of your being. And I would say that in that way, the cold really has been both my biggest teacher and my lifeline at that stage. That's an incredible story. And uh, what we also talked about previously is something I'd love to return to because that very much resonates with something that I've gone through personally through uh, a very kind of a deep sense of a need of a healing and of a fixing of something internal and turning that into a gift to share with the world and i think that's where i've personally drawn a lot of power from the uh, kind of uh, many of the traumatic events i went through with my own father and with my own personal kind of battle with with helping a person who's been in a very dark place and becoming entrenched in a dark place myself, and through that, gaining a deeper understanding of the human experience, of human nature, of myself, not the least, but years and years after the actual event and after recovering from a darker period in life, turning that into a personal flame that's not only something for you, but something to be shared, and, and your story really provoked a kind of a, a very, very strong relation to my own experience in that realm, and I found it very inspiring. So I think that would definitely be something I would love to return to. Thank you. Yeah, so I think this is the thing. People all have their personal stories. And for me, sharing my story of abuse and of rape, it's for me, it's just a tool to mirror what other people have within them. Okay, you don't have to be assaulted or you don't have to be abused to have had darker days. And if I talk about my depression, my panic attacks and my really anxiety that 
I still vividly remember that it was curled up in a ball, just crying. And I don't even remember why anymore. But I was feeling so, so, so guilty for things that happened in my life or that I felt like I provoked within other people or that I felt I was blaming myself for the things I didn't do, the things I should have done, the things I did, the things that I was blaming myself for so much. At a certain moment, I started to realize that we all are blaming ourselves for so many things in our lives. We are blaming ourselves constantly for not being our best version of ourselves, not being perfect in a sense. And I think it's very good, it's very positive to strive to always be better and do better, like nothing against that. But you can only do so much. You really have to do the inner work and start to really be kind towards yourself and learn how to indeed deal with the things that you call mistakes. And I think once you really let go of those assumptions, once you really let go of your own self-beliefs, you get a window of possibilities and you all of a sudden can see the huge potential you have within you. And I think for me as well, again, that's, that's a translation from the cold of, I remember vividly the moment that I realized within the cold, I could be very compassionate towards myself. And I was like, okay, I'm such in such an extreme environment. I'm like in two degree water and I'm doing this so I can be very kind to myself. I can be very, just breathe and relax. And I was very nice to myself when I was in an ice bath. And then there was a moment of realization. Why can't I be nice to myself in everyday life? Because at that stage, my life was an ice bath. My life was this big power that was overwhelming me that I was fighting that I didn't really know how to deal with this whole fight or flight response was my everyday life and when I realized that it's not just the cold that it's a direct stressor but we have stressors in our lives that are like the cold and we need to be the compassion towards ourselves with dealing with that with dealing with the emotional uh, trauma that we can go through in many many different ways that's kind of when I would say it hit me it hit me that how this method is really helping people it's of course the physical and physiological benefits that people get but it's also the realizations and the mental yet yeah, tools that you get thought by doing something out of your comfort zone by challenging yourself challenging your beliefs and you kind of start realizing that indeed you are not your thoughts. And when people ask me, okay, so you go into the cold, there is still this voice in my head that tells me, oh, I don't shower cold today, I did it yesterday, or my mind is making a, up a ton of excuses to not go into the cold. But then you realize you can still do it. You can still switch that knob into cold water and you realize time and time and time and time again that you're not your thoughts. And I think this is the biggest power because when once you start translating that into more than just taking a cold shower in the morning, that's where the real like magic begins, in my opinion. What's so striking to me is that I feel like 
everything you're just saying is really speaking to me at the time when I was through a very, very dark period in my life. And, and it had a lot to do with associating the loss of my father first as I knew him and then in a kind of physical sense when, when he passed and feeling through a lot, a lot of emotional baggage and a lot of negative self-talk and pain and blaming myself for not being able to help him. And we, we briefly talked about this kind of a pattern that we humans seem to be hardwired almost to have uh, within ourselves in terms of, of turning traumatic events and succeeding darker times and potentially even depression into a loop of, of negative self-talk and even uh, self-blame that you just uh, vividly described. So what, what's kind of your message to your previous self or to my previous self now that you have kind of gone through that period and, and have been able to share in a wonderful way the lessons and the, the structure uh, that you have managed to build around this experience through a cold exposure, through the Wim Hof technique, and later on through your own business and through your own mission of helping others overcome similar events and similar mind spaces? That's a very interesting question. And I'm just thinking if I would tell myself anything, it's a very difficult question because knowing the things that I know now are maybe not the lessons I should tell myself because I remember that people told me the things that I'm telling people now, like this too will pass and it's it's going to be all right and you will get over it. But it's you need to be ready to hear it. So what was it that you were not experiencing it? You were hearing it, but not experiencing it directly. Yeah. yeah I think once you, once you're really in a depressed state of mind, once you're really down there, I think, yeah, it is only the realizations that I've gone through because I've experienced it, that I can say right now, the things that I know. Right. And maybe it's the same for you. When you, when you think back about the time you're, it created the person who you are today. And that's actually so beautiful because if you would have done things differently or you would have tried to change your approach, maybe you wouldn't have really learned the lessons that makes you into who you are today that you maybe really needed. And of course, I don't wish it upon anybody to be abused to have gone through a loss like you did. But you are such an amazing person. And having gone through that, you can relate to people in such a beautiful way that maybe it would have even been wrong to, yeah, to say you the lessons or to tell you the lessons that maybe you want to have had at that stage. I mean, I don't really know how to describe it, but yeah, I think it's it's all part of a of a bigger process. And for me now to be able to relate with people that are sexually assaulted, to relate with people that have been depressed or have gone through a loss like that, it's also something that I'm very grateful for. So yeah, I really honestly don't know what I would tell my past self maybe it's better to rethink what I should tell my current self because if I can constantly tell myself that yeah I'm not my thoughts this is still very accurate these days and 
of course I'm not I'm not a very spiritual person that has it all figured out. I am still figuring stuff out. So to tell myself over and over again that I'm not my thoughts and that I am allowed to make mistakes and do things in a way that then my future self might think of, oh, why did you do it? Well, because there was a lesson to be learned there. And yeah, I think that's the only thing you can do. <laughs> I don't know. I do resonate with the idea that we do get the lessons that not necessarily we want to have, but what we do need to evolve into that next stage of being able to relate to others and being able to be more useful human beings. I do very much resonate with that message. But is it like, why is it that these, when we talk about these essentially transformative moments, essentially transformative experiences, why is it that we need to go through so much perceived pain and misery, be it either in the experiential realm or in the physical realm to gain these insights. That's something that I've been generally pondering, not the least because I was just climbing a 6,000-meter mountain in Kazakhstan, and I found myself on the edge of a high-altitude cliff in, a, in the middle of the, the scariest storm I've ever been. And I was thinking to myself, hmm, there's something very similar to the mind space that I was in after a traumatic event. And there's something that I need to experience here in order to grow as a person and simultaneously thinking this shit isn't normal. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm spending my time on a glacier uh, fearing for my life while on an epic climbing mission very high up, which is something that I can relate to when you're pursuing your mission on the extreme in the physical realm in the mental realm. Why is it that we need to do all this crazy shit to grow as people, <laughs> as persons? And why is it that we can't just be normal people and, and sit home and do a meditation and, and grow as humans? What's, what's your own take on that? You must be considering that. <laughs> do you ever think about that? I think it's more like a godlike question, though. Yeah, on maybe what, what is good, what's bad, and what lessons do we need to learn? Honestly, I don't think there is a clear-cut answer to that. <laughs> but... I think that we certainly need to experience something firsthand in order to to relate. And I think, I mean, don't get me wrong, I had so many positive insights and good spiritual, I don't know, not awakenings or whatever you would call it, meditating or say, being under the Pandora star or something like that. So I did have some really good insights in Uh, this realm uh, when I was just sitting at home meditating but we still need the hands-on and real-life experience to maybe redefine our own limits towards ourselves. it's not necessarily to redefine something out there but you can have the visual image or you can visualize climbing a mountain it's not the same as actually climbing it it's not the same as encountering a storm like you say and it's only when you are in the midst of the storm that you can enjoy the quiet and peace outside of it, maybe? I don't know. It has to have something to do with the first-hand experience and, and being completely exposed, just kind of stripped down of your outer layers, which cold exposure for me personally seems to do exceptionally well. And also just simply taking my body into environments that are utterly hostile, that make every cell in my body aware of the fact that this is not somewhere we should be going and going there in spite of that feeling, going there 
in spite of that internal signal that we are now in the realm of high risk. We are somewhere where we need to be in a in deep flow state in order to survive. Yeah. How do you think about that? How do you describe cold exposure to someone who's never done it? Like, how do you talk about these experiences that you're having on the edge and when you're when you're pushing yourself? Yeah, I really I really like what you say. The flow state. I think that is definitely definitely a big part of it because to me meditation and cold exposure are very very close meditation and extreme sports are very very close because you need to be in that flow state Hell you yeah. need to be in that super focus super i actually say to people that haven't done cold exposure before it's forced meditation It's really, you need to be focused and you need to really strip down and let go of everything you think you are. Because actually for most of the people that have assumptions before they even go into a cold bath and for people especially that are used to fighting, that are used to um, mm, battling, resisting. resisting, battling with the outside environment, like there are forces of nature you can't fight. There are forces of nature. You just have to, yeah, relax and ease into it. Breathe through? Breathe through. <laughs> yeah, you have to give in. You, you, can't, you can't do anything than just relax and simply be. And for me, that is what the cold exposure is about. It's a tool to literally just be and strip down of all your assumptions that you had beforehand. Because really, it's nature. You can't fight it. And then you also realize that there are forces of nature within yourself that you can't fight. You are nature in its essence. You are nature. So everything of your being is nature. People are often saying to me like, okay, how do I find a good cold spot in, in the city? How do I do this? How do I do that? Of course, there are many solutions. You can make an ice bath. You can make this. You can make that. You can take your bicycle and your car. You go, can go for a winter swim anywhere. But realizing that you are part of nature is the biggest. Then you will find nature everywhere you are, even in, in New York City or even in in places where you feel like you're so far away from nature, when you realize that you are 100% nature, you can make peace with that and you can stop finding that as, yeah, maybe the self-talk as you're fighting yourself. Do you feel more connected when you dunk yourself into, a, into an icy lake? Yes, I do think so. It's, it's, a, different, it's a different way of connection. It's, it's every time, again, it's, um, I would say, a reawakening um because yeah you you really have to sink back into yourself and not not to just keep repeating myself but when you go into the cold it just teaches you so much about yourself in areas in your life in areas in your being where you weren't even expecting it and this is not just a quick dunk for the health benefits but really easing into this and like recommend it to stay two minutes because then you have to really go through the process of the beginning you want to fight it and you want to get out and then there comes a point that you can't do anything but relax because it's very tiring for the body to start to fight 
And most of the times that we just spoke about that briefly, when people say, oh, if you fall from the boat, if you, if you fall into this ice water a few minutes and you're dead, it's because of the panic, of the resistance, of the, of the will to fight and the will to fighting a force of nature. Because there is so much energy that's going lost in fighting that your body doesn't really know how to settle in and how to actually deal with what's going on firsthand. And doing the Wim Hof Method and going into the ice bath really teaches you how to deal with things in a very calm and non-panicky way. So you were a diver before becoming aware of the Wim Hof Method, mm -hmm. of breath work, of the benefits and the journey of cold exposure. And uh, before I would assume that, that uh, cold had this kind of an impact on your life as an element of uh, exploration. So uh, can you just briefly tell me how the story from someone who was passionate about diving how that story evolved to someone who is now attempting to break the world record in what someone might call a superhuman feat of uh, diving underwater, under ice, in very, very extreme conditions in high altitude in the Himalayas. <laughs> yeah, so I was always waterbound. I always loved the water. And I was, I was working scuba diving. I was working in free diving. I, I really, I would say water is my element, so to say. And then when, yeah, when I heard that video of Wim Hof and I was in that, in a darker state, I just started doing cold exposure, but not really as a free diver. I was just doing cold exposures for the sake of the mental benefits. Like uh, cold showers and yeah. ice baths and, you know, yeah. like the... Just winter swimming in general. Uh, this was when I was living in Australia. So Australian winter, especially in South Australia, the water would get up to like 10 degrees or something. So not extremely cold. But then me and my ex-partner, we moved to uh, the UK... And from there, we travel to Iceland. And in Iceland, there is this very iconic place called Silfra. It's the gap between the American and European tectonic plates. And you can dive in between that. And that's two degrees year round. So we went there and I just wanted to go for a meditative dip. And then I looked underwater and it, the visibility is so, so, so good. You can see like 80, 100 meters visibility like nowhere I've ever seen before. It's like flying, right? Yeah. And I just had the urge to explore. And because of the cold water, this is actually a place where people only go in dry suits. So we just had the idea to make like a short video about, yeah, me free diving in this, in this place. Not really thinking that the internet would blow up about it. And ever since... The internet kind of did blow up about it. I became just a girl who does this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that I just, became a phenomenon yeah. then and there. Yeah. So we just actually did one video just for fun. And then, yeah, I don't know how the internet goes viral. That kind of <laughs> just happened in, in one day. And after that, I actually decided to share my story and share the story about how I use cold water as a therapy to overcome trauma. And from that place, I started to really connect to people and uh, connect to personal stories from people and their trauma and started coaching and helping people with overcoming trauma and overcoming their own negative thinking about themselves. So I think from that, that moment, 
yeah, a, a very nice company, uh, Beautiful Destinations. They made a video about my story. And ever after that, I just have been uh, going through the method with people and doing some personal coaching, doing my own events. Kind of, it just catapulted into being the person who does this. But then I was able to really serve others by, yeah, helping them through trauma or through, I think, yeah, like we just briefly spoke about it, but there are so many more losses that we can grieve about, grief about than the ones that we're now allowed to be named. And a lot of people understand it indeed when you say, yeah, I lost my father. But you also spoke about an earlier loss even before he was gone. And these are things people can lose themselves. People can lose so much or just a single part of themselves. When I got assaulted, I lost a part of myself. I lost, yeah, so much of myself that very moment. And other people lose different things. And if we if we are not allowed to, to talk about it, not allowed to grieve about it, yeah, you create these blockages. So that is what I'm focusing on now with people. How are you okay with also losing parts of somebody else? Not necessarily, yeah, losing them in, in real time, but, yeah, through disease, through illness, or through just not being able to help them. And especially, how do you stop blaming yourself for that? Because once you stop blaming yourself, I think only then it's that you can realize your full potential. And also, the way of uh, traumatic events of, of starting to define our daily experience and the connection to the healing power of uh, practices like cold exposure, meditation, that really do take our immediate experience deeply into the now, and also at times outside of ourselves, how that helps, or at least has helped me, become aware of many thought processes that I'm not consciously aware of in, in an ordinary state. Like, for example, like in cold exposure, in meditation, in the flow of extreme sports, when I'm climbing, when I'm performing, climbing moves that I know that I have to nail. And if I don't, there will be consequences. Sometimes those consequences can be really, really serious. I feel that I'm very much outside of my, myself in a, in a positive sense and that I have a sense of objectivity. And I think that's also a very um, kind of a topical feature of, of, these, of these activities. What do you think? Yeah, I think climbing and yeah, every extreme sports it's it's very very closely related to this altered state of being because there is no space for mistakes. There is no room to think and overthink. And I think that is the essence of it because when you get away from the overthinking part, you are just literally just doing it. You are doing what you think in that moment is going to lead to the best outcome. So, yeah, I think that's definitely an altered state of consciousness because this is not something that you can do or that you are doing most of the time in day-to-day -day life. We are so much overthinking the words we're saying, overthinking the things that we're doing or often indeed ruminating about yeah, what kind of trauma redefines who we are. 
that we sometimes forget to just enjoy that the experience made us who we are. And for me, this is always a work in progress, but I am so thankful now for having had this bad experience in my life because I can relate. I can relate to people so much deeper and so much better than I would have ever been able to without it. And it's finding that gratitude for, I think, maybe even the things that we call mistakes or that we, yeah, get back to or relapse into, that gave us the most beautiful knowledge that we have in our lives. And then I kind of don't want to, to sound like it's, it's all planned by a divine being or whatever, because I'm not really sure how I, how I believe in those kind of things, but it is finding the beauty in it. It's really finding and starting to, to learn how to redefine these moments in time for yourself and not have them define who you are. Yeah, I can definitely say that my trauma and probably also your story for you has made me into a vastly different person than I probably was before that happened or that I was a few years ago when I when I didn't go through the extreme cold exposure as I did. But then again, I think we, we just briefly touched upon it in, in the conversation beforehand. You can't be what you can't see. And you have to see certain things in order to, to be in a certain way. Sometimes people have visions. I would say like Wim Hof. He has a very, very strong vision of he knew that he was able to achieve something. He knew that he was uh, capable of doing some extraordinary things just out of tapping into the more primal state of being. But for me, he was the image that I could use to become and to do this, the ice diving that I do. So I think these visions and people who show you the impossible are very, very important so you can internalize, well, I'm literally just human. I, like Wim, Wim always says, I'm not your guru. I'm not your motherfucking guru. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Breathe, um, motherfucker. Yeah. And I'm not your motherfucking guru. I love this. <laughs> yeah. But he's right. And still people think that, of course, what he is, what he's doing is extraordinary. But we are all extraordinary. And we can all do so much more if we just let go of the ways that we define ourselves. So if that's by a negative story or for me, yeah, if that's holding on to the story of my sexual assault, when you learn how to let go of that. And for me now, the assault is something that I can speak about that for me it's the same as yeah having having dinner what I had for dinner last night um it's something that happened in my life but it's not something that is constantly defining my decisions and sometimes people do get so caught up into their story and their fears that it really defines who they are at this given moment and i think once you take people through the process of redefining themselves through that that's where kind of, yeah, the relaxation and the magic can happen. You can't be what you can't see. 
what are you seeing in a lake 6,000 meters up on a mountain? And what are you going to bring back from that experience? Like, what's driving you to push towards the unknown in this sense and also, also in an attempt to break a record? I'm sure you've thought about this, not only in terms of breaking a record and, and, uh, and a showing that something that many people might consider crazy or impossible or, or beyond human capability. What's waiting up there for you? I think mostly it's myself. It's a mirror. It's going to be a reflection. But I think for me, when I, when I set this goal to, to climb Everest and to find the highest lake, it's first of all, it's the problem that there shouldn't be lakes up there that high so this was for me very disturbing to find out that yeah indeed like a mountain like Mount Everest is just kind of melting away slowly this was one narrative to the story but for the other one you can't be what you can't see so to show people that we are capable of so much more to make a journey to find a lake that shouldn't be there so an impossible lake to do something that is considered humanly impossible, but showcasing that it is, and showcasing that we are creating our own reality and we are seeing what is possible and what is impossible. So it's really, for me, about redefining the limits. Like, yeah, the, the two-minute mile or the... the exactly, which was considered <laughs> impossible for decades. Yeah, and it's, it's really showcasing that we are capable, that we are capable of so, so much more that we think. And it's not just cold. It can be something totally different to another person. But this is how I learned to get into that flow state. I think there are so many things like climbing and running ultra marathons that <laughs> people are always doing the impossible. So it's not about the world record. It's not about, yeah, going up there to show like, okay, I'm just, I'm just this, this cool chick that's going to do this. It's not my story. It's a story about all of us. It's the story about the potential we all have within us to, yeah, to be just freaking awesome. <laughs> Kick more ass. Yeah. I love it. I love how you can turn the kind of a physical and the kind of quantifiable goals that you have into lessons that feel very applicable in other fields of life. Like, have you always had that skill or has that come through exposing yourself and, and being very open to potentially dangerous activities or, or like doing some crazy ass shit? Or has that kind of grown on as you were doing these activities? Yeah, I definitely think that as you do the activities, as you kind of face, face death, <laughs> maybe, so to say, you learn so many lessons about yourself. And I'm not sure if I if I always had this this kind of introspection kind of thing. I'm not really sure, but I think the call definitely definitely contributed. Putting myself into an extreme environment is a really big lesson. And yeah, like like my business, disturb the comfort. We have to get out of a comfort zone in order to realize that there is so much there is more possible than we think if we constantly have indeed we're in an inside in a room where the temperature is constantly between 17 and 21 degrees and then we go outside or we go into our car or we put on a big jacket you never tap into that potential of your body to deal with the cold you don't tap into that potential of yourself 
to face these kind of stressors. So it's not just a call, but it, it goes for so many comfortable places where we are. I had a period where I was really trying to make myself as uncomfortable as I could. I, yeah, slept on the floor. I, from sleeping on the floor, I decided, okay, I don't want a blanket anymore. So I got rid of the blanket. So I literally taught myself how to sleep without needing anything for comfort. Realizing that, yeah, you can't sleep without needing the comforts of a bed and without needing the comfort of... These things are all very nice. They're all very comfortable. But you gain so much more appreciation once you show yourself that you can do without. That I think that is where the magic of life happens in realizing that, yes, you are, of course, allowed to sleep in a bed with a blanket and stuff. But realizing that you don't have to that you can be perfectly fine with a very uncomfortable situation. Yeah, I think when you start doing, when you start triggering yourself into uncomfortable situations, it's maybe even a little comfort in that because <laughs> you constantly, yeah, are are doing stuff and are finding yourself in, in like extreme environments. <laughs> I can relate to that. And it does uh, really give you a unique perspective to what you actually need not only to survive, but to actually lead a happy life. Yeah. And there is a very, there's a very stoic, very kind of a stoic edge to it, but there is also a very human edge and a very empowering edge to it. Like for me, for example, doing similar exercises, taking myself to very uncomfortable environments and, and finding that my happiness is not reliant on the comforts and joys of everyday life that oftentimes only only makes me weaker, makes me softer, makes me, you know, like takes me more into my head rather than into the essence of my being. For example, like the story that you just told, I signed up for a survival drill in spring as part of preparing for the mountain expedition, but also as a part of kind of um, bringing myself back to nature, back into a deep sense of connectedness by taking away warmth, sleep, food, a sense of security. It was an Arctic survival drill where we were chased by uh, enemy patrols in infantry gear. I, I served in the Finnish Navy and uh, it was part of a kind of a drill there that I signed up for. And essentially what it was like, it was a survival drill and a, a kind of an evasion and a guerrilla warfare drill where we were chased throughout an Arctic forest in wintertime without food, without water for a, a couple of days and experiences like that I feel bring me closer to myself and teach me lessons about myself much like climbing much like meditation cold exposure these kind of moments that do bring me some lessons about myself that I feel I wouldn't otherwise get what are some of the lessons that you feel that you have gained through exposing yourself in the realm of uncomfortable situations about yourself? Lessons I learned about myself, I think maybe it's more about us in general as a human species than just about me personal. Because when I started my business, it was, it was always kind of called disturb the comfort. And by finding these, yeah, going over these boundaries and stepping over and stepping over, I kind of realized that indeed sometimes... Getting out of your comfort zone is very challenging, but getting back in again 
and not just getting back into your comfort zone, but really finding compassion for yourself can be very difficult as well. So getting out of out of the comfort zone, like kind of like with the ice, I could be very compassionate inside of the ice. So when I would go out of my comfort zone, I could achieve things towards myself that I couldn't in my everyday life. So then kind of the, the second layer of comfort, uh, the disturbed came up and I started to focus more on how to move people to a more uh, tribalism, to a more connectivity between people. And for me, that stage came, the call taught me how to connect to nature. So I really learned how to connect and respect nature. Then, yeah, I realized that I'm nature. So I learned how to kind of reconnect to myself. And only then I was open enough to reconnect to others again. So this connection to others and this this uh, shared storytelling that we were just talking about, shared storytelling became so important in my life because once you can verbalize your story and once you learn how to listen, so much of what we humans need these days is just to be listened to and to be able to listen to others, to be able to relate. The biggest urge of people is connection, connectivity, and being able to relate to others and have others relate to ourselves. Because this is a reflection of who we are as a person. This is how we see what we are. It's only by being the mirror of other people, by standing in front of somebody that observes you and sees, okay, you're human too. You're something that I can relate to, that I can connect to, that I can share, that I can laugh with, that I can talk to. And Yeah, I think this for me became the biggest lesson of extreme sports, the need for connection. We are tribal animals. Yeah. And it looks like the world of modern comforts is taking us further and further away from being connected to our neighbors, being connected to our communities, being connected to our friends, our families, our fellow human beings, our fellow apes. Yeah. We're and living in... Digital. So <laughs> yeah, on throwing the layer of social media and throwing the layer of our digital existence on top of that, do you ever feel that our modern life is just geared towards fucking us up deeply <laughs> so that we need to go and pull yeah. off these crazy stunts? Maybe, yeah, maybe. No, I think this is the issue. Like, when you look at social media, to me it's all about getting real and being real. And of course, yeah, there are images on the internet and it's kind of staged and set up, but being real, being authentic in your connection to people and not having to, to fake happiness or to have fake this sense of achievements constantly. Yeah, I think that the internet is very toxic for that because you always... Yeah, as an entrepreneur, you to run a business, you need a certain presence. You need a certain feeling about yourself. Um, and it's very difficult to hold that image and to, to have that version of yourself, but then still be true to who you are. And because your business is only part of you. You are not your business. I'm not my business. This business is something that I created. And it's, yeah, it starts to become something that, yeah, in a way defines me for certain people, but it's not fully who you are. Like your internet presence is not who you are and you still need 
that hands-on connection and that that being able to sit across each other and just have a conversation. So podcasts are awesome for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's why I love Foreign Forum, right? Because it really strips down all the bullshit that's currently wrong with with communication and, and with consuming all the signals and all the uh, instantly rewarding blings and bleeps that we carry with ourselves in the extension, in the cyborg extension of ourselves that we call our cell phones, our laptops, which will very shortly and very soon become indistinguishable from our daily experience. Like, what's the remedy here? Like, just to give it to you straight, I feel that we would need to disrupt our daily reality, our cities, our homes, our workplaces, you know, like the container that we're, that we're in as humans. Like, what would be your solution to bringing people closer to their own, own inner core, finding their own voice, being more connected to themselves and to nature that you just so vividly described? Like, what would be the antidote to that? Like, built into our city? Because you know, like, we can sit here all day long and talk about cold showers, and only, like, 0.5% of people will only ever try it. Like, I've been doing this for a couple of years now, and I think that, you know... And 0.5% of my friends who have actually ever done a cold shower would be <laughs> yeah. an exaggeration. I would say that probably like, um, yeah, it seems to be that people are clinging to the comforts of everyday life and in the process becoming uh, less and less connected. So what should we really do about that in, in very concrete terms? I think there is no clear-cut answer for that. I'm sorry. I think... Yeah, people need different things. Like, yeah, I love my cold showers. But I think it's for people to really realize and to find what makes them tick. And most important to realize, indeed, that you are nature. And you can say that so many times. You can say it a hundred thousand, no matter how many times to a person, if he doesn't hear it, if he doesn't internalize the core of his being. Because you really need to feel that, right? Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. It doesn't help can, yeah, to yeah. just hear it. Like, it doesn't do anything. It's like, it just bounces off because your mind is like Teflon, uh, unless yeah. you have a very deep experience of it. Yeah. So I think, yes, you can tell people, okay, maybe go take a cold shower to provoke that. But if people don't do that, you can't really force this insight on somebody. It's something that they have to experience. So I would really not know how to give tools for that like i mean i don't have a television in my house where i live in berlin i also don't have a uh, wi-fi just because i rather do something real and even yeah maybe listen to an audiobook podcast anything like that than clinging onto television i still use the internet i still watch movies that I maybe put on my laptop, but then it's a very conscious decision. So I think the only antidote is conscious action. Because if you are doing things because you're, yeah, you're checking your phone how many times a day? Hundreds. How many percent of that is unconscious? Probably um, 95% for me yeah. and most people. Yeah. You check your phone to check the time. You check your phone, okay, you thought it vibrated, but it actually didn't, so you still check your phone. It's really making decisions in a conscious way of, yeah, maybe not doing certain things, not using your phone for a day, not sleeping in your bed a day, like making those decisions consciously that I would say could be the antidote. But then again, you still have to put in the very physical work. There is no antidote in a cold shower. There is no antidote in anything if you don't internalize it. 
people can sit in an ice bath for two minutes. But if you're sitting in there two minutes fighting, you have done your two minutes, but you haven't gone through the process of relaxation. If you sit with the eyes closed and saying, okay, I'm meditating, but in the same time you're thinking about a million different things, you can sit there for five hours with your eyes closed, you still have to internalize the meditation process. So an antidote, I don't really know, and I think it can be different for anybody. So, How have you uh, kind of organized your life in the sense that uh, do you use social media? Do you have uh, some kind of um, ways of finding that calmness also in your in your apartment, like in terms of equipment or in terms of routines or habits that you've adopted to serve that purpose because you can't be in cold water all the time. And, and, and as you just described, it can be sometimes hard even to find the types of conditions that you would really need to get under ice. Like, do you have an <laughs> ice tank in your apartment or how does that look like? I wanted to, but then it wasn't possible to put an ice tank there. So That would be rad though. <laughs> yeah. I would love to have that. Yeah. I thought about it like I thought of some people do have their freezer who then they, they put full of water. And oh, then, yeah, yeah. I've seen some of those. Like a kind of a freezer, like a massive yeah, freezer box freezer, full yeah. of, chucked full of water and ice. I tried that, but it wasn't possible in the apartment where I am today. In so you had one of those? When I was box living in London, I was, was having a huge box. And in winter, that would just freeze over. So in winter, it was fine. But in summer, I... Last year, I, in summer, I was just in very Arctic places. But then again, these days, I think I focus more on finding time for myself. Not necessarily cold exposure, but I get up really early in the morning and do a bit of journaling, do a bit of this this mindful mindful action, some movement, some, yeah, Mindful action? Is that a specific program or like a routine? or No, for me, it's just doing something very yeah aware and conscious. I aim to not grab my phone first thing in the morning, not always succeeding at that. Because, yeah, the mind start racing with business. With We just kind of started a new business a few weeks ago. So a lot to do for the launch of that. Then the events that are coming up, so... It's not always perfect, but I try to keep my morning in a very nice routine of doing a bit of journaling, yeah, having a nice coffee, and then doing some, I would, yeah, just call it conscious movement. Sometimes it's breathing, sometimes it's going for a run, but throughout the process of that, I really try to be within my body and not racing in my mind. I read in a book somewhere that... Buddhist monks, they try to shift their consciousness from their head into other body parts. And I kind of started playing around with that practice to try and shift my consciousness from my head into my stomach, into certain elements of my body to really focus on one area of my body specifically. So I would say maybe it's a meditation practice. I don't know. But yeah, I, I try to do that. When I'm running, I try to, to really consciously be in my feet. How does the pavement feel? How does the shoe feel? What am I feeling with my feet? Rather than, okay, I'm in my head constantly and trying to process something totally non-running related. Or when I'm breathing, I'm really focusing on how I use my muscles, which muscles are responding to an action that... I take within the breathing. Where do I feel it? So mindfulness, I guess. Do you have a separate meditation practice or is that something you like to combine with 
cold exposure or how does your life look on a typical day on that front? A meditation I do, yeah, I don't actually meditate every single morning, but I would say uh, definitely the biggest, yeah, biggest chunk of my mornings. And it's always a different practice. I sometimes really sit, meditate. Sometimes I listen to an audio meditation. Uh, sometimes I, yeah, meditate with my eyes open. It's kind of a state of consciousness that I'm trying to get into uh, where I am indeed in that flow state and where I'm just allowing myself to be and to be without expectations, without past blame without any of those past present future kind of essences <laughs> i also wanted to talk a bit about limiting beliefs because i think that's a huge one for so many people listening and this is something that i've had the pleasure of talking about with with many people who have overcome uh, beliefs that have been seriously limiting to them and this is also a front where i feel i grow inches and inches if not even several feet as a human being mm. every time I'm doing something that I have previously considered tough or gruesome or even borderline impossible, I feel that those experiences do translate into different areas of life, as you also described. What are some of the limiting beliefs that you've managed to overcome through the experiences you've described? I think the first one is that I'm useless. I often taught about myself as a person who is kind of, yeah, I was always blaming myself for being, for just existing. I was always afraid of consuming too much, of asking too much of the world for me and not giving back enough. So I was constantly living in a circle of, I need to give back. I need to do something good. I need to, like, to do actively put out the good energy to balance my existence, to balance being able to buy food, I need to donate food, to balance being able to, yeah, live in a yeah, good upbringing, I need to volunteer to just balance myself out. And even though these are, these are all good, good acts of interaction, it's, it's positive to, yeah, volunteer. I did it out of, I felt like otherwise I wasn't allowed to live. So I think... A sense of responsibility yeah. or even like a necessity? Yeah, for me it became a necessity to, to balance out my existence. Just out of, out of guilt that I was alive. And I was like constantly trying to balance just being. And I think what through extreme sports I kind of realized like... It's, I'm allowed to be here. And I don't mean this in a very grim sense, but yeah, I sometimes just felt like I wasn't allowed to be. And now I just know more that the way, yeah, my life is going, it's okay. And even though I really love to give back to communities and I love having that aspect within my personal business to yeah give some of my income to charity that's something that I now do out of yeah an inner wish and not something that I have to do to offset me being alive 
So I think that was, it's a very maybe weird limiting belief that I would say. And the rest of the things, I think the limiting beliefs are often the ones that are thought to us. It's something that you once heard as a child being said about you, about you not being good enough, about you not being smart enough. Like, yeah, we just briefly talked about it, like teachers who tell you that you're not smart enough to do certain things or other mentors in your life that limit your beliefs. And I think it's not necessarily to fight these limiting beliefs, but to realize that they're not your reality. That what somebody else's opinion about you doesn't have to be your reality. Somebody else can tell you like, oh, you're never going to finish a university degree because you're not smart enough. Then if you then internalize that and say, okay, because of this person, he is a teacher. He should have known. Yeah, he would have known if I actually was capable of doing this. You start internalizing that you're not smart enough to go to university. But when you then realize that these are not your beliefs and maybe that you can go to university and that you then start putting your energy into the can instead of the can't. I think that is, yeah, overcoming your limiting beliefs in every essence. Definitely. You also do some coaching or that's a core part of your mission nowadays. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Right now I coach people on a personal level, on a business level, but more into redefining themselves. So yeah, you you have your story. I think the storytelling aspect of it is so important for me because every single person has a life story. And it's the aspects of their life story that they choose to define themselves with that chooses to either have limiting beliefs or encouraging beliefs towards themselves. So once you start redefining your own story for people to see what lessons they learned to focus on yeah, the more positive thoughts behind that, but also holding space for the negative, that can greatly shift people's mindset to redefine what they are really passionate about doing, how they can run a business in yeah, a compassionate way and how they actually really wanted to do it all the time. But because of this and this business book, they decided to not do it that way because other people must have had greater knowledge. Of course, they're mentors. Of course, they're people that have experience in the field. But that doesn't mean that you constantly have to shift your way of doing things just because somebody else tells you that it's a bad way. Maybe it's a way that didn't work for them. Maybe they weren't able to do things in a certain way. Yeah, and the same with the ice bath. If you put people in an ice bath, that translates kind of to what their limiting beliefs are of themselves. So kind of a very broad range of coaching. But yeah, that's how I normally take people on board <laughs> to tell their story. <laughs> that's amazing. I think it's been a massively impactful realization to understand the own stories or, or my own stories that I'm telling myself and I've been mm -hmm. telling myself ever since I can remember. And, and the people in our lives have a massive impact on that. And just yeah. becoming aware of that has been super, super powerful for me personally. Mm -hmm. And I love how you described it. 
so vividly as part of uh, what you do and how you facilitate understanding those stories and understanding those narratives. Why are we so addicted to telling ourselves negative stories about our daily reality? What is it with the human brain? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I have, I have thought about it. <laughs> I would not know if we're hardwired to think negative uh, beliefs, but I don't think so. Because when you look at kids, when you look at kids, how they play, how they interact, how they think about themselves, they're always positive. They're always going out, playing, doing. And if you tell them, oh, you can't hold on to, you can't do pull-ups or push-ups or whatever, kids just do it. They don't even think about it twice. Am I capable of doing it? They just do it. And if they fail, they do it again and they do right. it again and do There's it again. no filter. Yeah. There's no hesitation. There is no failure because they just see that it's not that I'm not capable of doing it ever. They see that you can learn. And I think we are taking that learning away by saying, okay, I can't do this. It only means that you haven't put in the effort and the time to actually do it. But it doesn't mean that you're not capable of doing it. Everybody is capable of doing so, so much more. If we only realize, if we can only switch the negative thinking into something that we can create, then creating your own reality. I would not know how, when the switch happens from that kid-like thinking to an adult, like, I can't really do that kind of thinking. But without putting any blame I think the educational system can be quite a big flaw there. Oh, yeah. By constantly focusing on what we can't do and how we are not achieving certain things that other kids are achieving and why we're not good in certain lessons or certain music or algebra or science. We're constantly focusing on what we don't have and what we don't know and what we are not capable of and failing exams yeah I when I was a teenager I had a huge huge fear of failing that the moment there was one question on a test that I didn't know I would just refuse to make the whole test because I rather have a zero than yeah knowing that I failed half of the test and feeling like I should have actually known so yeah, I think the educational system for me has been a very negative yeah, belief system. It made me think very negatively about myself. And I don't know if that's yeah, the cause of it or why we humans are so caught up in it. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it does seem like an environment that's uh, geared towards beating down the inner child and bringing in the sense of failure, bringing in the pressure of always succeeding, bringing in that risk aversion that many people suffer throughout their lives, even unknowingly, even though their starting point has been a child that is curious, that is passionate about life, that sees the unknown as something that is full of opportunity rather than fears yeah. and rather than limitations. Wow, I think there is definitely something, definitely something there I personally try to rekindle and cherish and feed my inner child as a human. And I found exposure to nature and music and uh, creative play to be 
especially helpful for me in that realm. Have you found some routines or some passions that really rekindle your own curiosity and a positive and a, and a creative mindset towards the future, towards life, towards the unknown? Yeah, I definitely think finding that child within yourself, finding time to play, finding time to just do things for the sake of just doing them. Not always have an agenda of what you have to learn or what you have to do, but just explore, explore your surroundings, explore nature, do like funny, silly things, but also really kind of challenge yourself like a child. I found kind of a, a nice joy in for a while just writing with my non-dominant hand. Just because you stimulate that learning again, that learning of doing something and then realizing that, yeah, you can just write and draw and, and paint with your non-dominant hand. Which hand do you use natively and which hand for you is non-dominant? Um, my left hand is non-dominant and normally I'm right-handed. So you started writing and drawing and yeah. where has that led? That I now can right with my left hand <laughs> yeah and it's it's of course it's not as pretty as my writing with my right hand but yeah it's again something that you're learning over and over again that i would say again limiting beliefs but you can perfectly write with your non-dominant hand if you just dare to fail and if you dare to not have it be pretty and if you dare to just I would just, yeah, Nike had it right. Just just do it, you know? You just have to really do it. And do it in a gentle way. Do it in a compassionate way. Don't do it to always get to do it, get <laughs> to do it right, always forceful. But learn how to have fun with it. Learn how to play with it. And, yeah, I think kids and holding space for that kid within you is the perfect method of doing so. Oh, yeah. I started an experiment where I always try to travel with an instrument. I brought a harmonica on oh, this trip. Cool. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I also recently, um, I started uh, playing the guitar. Like, I had a childhood with an abundance of, of musical passions in, in the family, and uh, I play the piano and percussion instruments, and I love to sing. But, but what I found to be extremely helpful with rekindling that sense of play and, and especially that sense of engaging in something without any expectations of the outcome, just for the sake of doing it, has been to grab a new instrument, and just having fun with it. And it's not, not always easy because there's always the cloak of self-criticism, and w which I wouldn't describe for me to be a major part of my personality, quite on the contrary. But <laughs> still having that time and having that every day, even for a couple of minutes of, of diving deep into something that has zero expectations, zero value outside of what it actually is. And for me, that's been like a traveling with funny things that are exceptionally good at sparking creativity. <laughs> and for this trip, it's the um, a marine band blues little thing that you can always have in your pocket and produce a song out of. I also got a like a small guitar during New Year's when I was traveling, and I had a like a local craftsman in Bali make nice. that. So, do you travel with some? items that are um, essential for, for sparking and rekindling that creativity or, or do you have any, any practices? that Because you're always yeah. on the go, right? You're yeah. also traveling a lot. So for me, that's been something that I'm like, hmm, it's not enough to have this stuff at home. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I think for me, that's my diving gear. I you always travel with your diving gear, I assume, because you're always... Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is my free diving gear, not my scuba diving gear. But yeah, for me, 
when I'm free diving, I am like a kid. Like I dive to something that I maybe know that I can't reach, but I just know that there is a racket 25 meters there. So I just want to see a glimpse of it. Sometimes I reach it. Sometimes I can cruise around there. Sometimes I don't. And I think that is something kids are better at than grown-ups. Grown-ups, they kind of the first thing they ask me, what is your PB? What's a PB for the people in the audience? Uh, yeah, so uh, the personal P- best in free diving. So static of- breath hold or depth or these numbers that we're like, oh, okay, I can hold my breath for so long. I can dive this deep. It's always the adults that ask it. It's always you focus so much on a glimpse of what I was capable of when my body was in a perfect state, when my mind was in the perfect state. But it doesn't matter because now I approach freediving as a kid and I don't have to break or set a personal best. It's just me having joy and then I will get better through time by just doing it, by just enjoying the time in the water. I'm getting better and better and better at it. So, yeah, I think that is how we should approach things a bit more, really in a playful way. And I think through that, we are hardwired to learn. Oh, yeah. Like, a kid would never ask a quantified measure of something that you're passionate about. But somehow, us adults have a way of perceiving the world so often through the records and the personal best and all the quantified metrics that don't really capture the activity, but are something very external, even though for you, of course, they're important because in a way you're aiming towards some type of a quantified record, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a very big contradiction within this. I'm aiming indeed to break a certain number, but I'm not holding on to the number as my main goal. I am enjoying the path of getting to the number and maybe even it's not going to be my personal best maybe by the time that I'm doing it I could have swam further or or not it's not focusing too much on it as an essence of who I am and what I want to achieve but really trying to enjoy the process of of free diving much more around just breaking a world record so yeah I think of course kids are competitive in nature kids are these type of things but I think as grown-ups, we're holding on to it much more as defining ourselves by it. And yeah, I think that is very important not to do. Like personally for me, okay, it's great. It's a nice goal to have to break a world record. But I don't want to become the world record. Like I want to be much more than, yeah, a one-time personal best of me diving a certain amount of meters under ice like it's not what makes me me it's just something that i do and something that i just do for fun (laughs) (laughs) it almost feels as if the quantified breaking or the attempt to break the world record is a byproduct of the journey which which i i like in a deeper sense also as a as part of your journey because whether you succeed or not I, i get a feeling that it does not really define your journey It's nice to set a goal, but if I'm not breaking it, I still attempted it. And I still had the journey of achieving what I have achieved in the last few months before even attempting a world record. 
I think a lot of people so focus on the outcome and what they want to achieve that they forget who they have become because of it. It's only, oh, I didn't break the world record. Oh, I didn't manage to keep my business going or I didn't manage to do this, this or that. But they forget what the process was leading up to that and how the many things they have learned in the process. And if you constantly focus on the outcome, you kind of lose the path of getting there. If you focus on running a marathon and on the day there's something that happens to your knee or happens to your ankle, you still run so many weeks before that to train for this marathon. You still probably change yourself from um, sitting on the couch to running and training for a marathon. Yeah, then it's not a failure anymore. If you learn how to enjoy who you are becoming because of the process, it's not the quantified one day, one time image that counts. It's the whole process. And I really try to focus on that rather than just, yeah, breaking the world record would be cool, but not breaking it. I would have learned a lot by training for breaking it. Exactly. So, yeah. It's a very anti-fragile way of looking at it, <laughs> as, as, as Talib would put it. What is the world record, just to give some context to the audience? Um, right now it's 50 meters. And that is in what kinds of conditions? It's in a lake in Finland, and the 30 centimeters of ice, and the water is, yeah, around zero degrees. That's 30 centimeters, that's around a foot of ice. For the audience, it's the amount of solid ice that can easily withstand cars and yes. different modes of <laughs> transportation. Yeah. That's an amount of ice that they open ice roads in the Nordic countries mm -hmm. so that people can use the lakes yes. as roads. So that's a hefty amount of ice. I've been under ice that thick. And even though psychologically, it doesn't really matter if there's a couple of inches, like five or 10 centimeters or 30 centimeters of ice, because you can't really yeah. break through. You really have to uh, rely on your skills and on your training. Mm -hmm. But how does that feel as a challenge psychologically? Because you must have gone through an extensive thought process to be able to trust yourself, trust your instincts and trust your training Yeah. Trust your body and mind to be able to pull off these crazy-ass stunts. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I think the um, 30 centimeters of ice, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely challenging. Like, there is no way that you can break through. Or, of course, there are, like, safety holes and there are safety divers with you under the ice. So, for me, being able to rely on them is, I would say... 70-80% of my training being able to really rely on the people that are safetying me to have my back if something goes wrong because it's learning how to um, not think negatively because when once you're under the ice yeah you can't really go back you can't really come up there you have to trust in yourself and in your training so yeah like I said even though the 100 meters is not the the aim within my training, but the trust that I'm getting into myself is. So I have to put in the physical work to train in order to build that trust within me. And I use a lot of visualization for that. I visualize everything that can go wrong. 
and how I would deal with that. Like, what happens if I lose my fin? What happens if, yeah, anything goes wrong in that sense? Like, I go through, like, I know that your eyes can freeze when you're underwater that cold. So how do I react when my eyes freeze? So um, your eyes can freeze? Yeah. So yeah. essentially your retina becomes, you know, like an icicle. Wow. Yeah. That yeah. sounds intense. Has that ever happened to you? No. It has happened to Wim, actually. But yeah, no, it's... To me, like a few other things happened. Yeah, I had to learn the hard way to not wear rings and, and a metal bracelet because they froze to my finger. Wow. That sounds super painful. It was. <laughs> so yeah, but it's going through the visualization process of everything that can go wrong and then teaching myself how I would respond. So in my training, what happens when my mask or my goggles fill with water? I can't see anymore. So how do I trust on being linked to a line that is only by training with not having goggles. That's training in all the extreme ways of doing something extreme. So it's by training with all the mistakes. I train when I actually don't want to train. I train when yesterday, actually, we went on a photo shoot here in a lake that for me is training as well. But I've been sick for the last three days. So for me, that was like a mental thing to do to just go into the water and I stayed in the water for two and a half hours training and doing free diving without mask, with mask, uh, without fins, with fins. It's all mental training of knowing that I can still pull it off even if I'm sick. And by doing these kind of things, I constantly try and seek what is the biggest lesson I can learn. And if on the day itself, everything is going to go right, perfect. But if I train myself for every single thing that can go wrong, every single thing can go wrong because I still know that I can do it even if things go wrong, even if I get a cramp, even if I lose my fin, I know I can still do it. So yeah, I think that is really the mental process that I go through. Making yourself immune to all the small things that can and I guess essentially at some point will go wrong for, yes. for most people engaging in, in these sports. How about in terms of uh, food and nutrition? How do you look at, at those as an athlete? I think for me, like my food is very important for me. I'm a vegan. Of course, I have to, yeah, to see food in a kind of different way to make sure that I have enough energy to do the things that I do. I think I eat vastly different in off-season than in on-season. When I'm training, like for me now, the season is starting... I need to shift my food intake drastically. If I'm training a lot, I actually can't eat a lot because normally I train on an empty stomach. But when your body has gone through a big stressor of cold exposure, it needs a little bit of energy before and it needs energy after because it's burning through a lot of energy. But for me, it's very hard to actually give my body the energy it needs so when I'm training, I often have trouble feeding because when I eat before training, my body just wants to get rid of it because it's dealing with a very, very direct stressor on the system. It doesn't have time to digest. It doesn't have time to um, energy to waste. And especially like as well, the if you have a full stomach, if you have a full stomach, 
then this is an area in your body that has to be kept warm. Right. So does it constrict your breathing capacity? Yes. If you eat? Yeah. Or if you have basically anything in your stomach or in your in your system? Often I, I kind of do yeah, more smoothies style, but then only just a little bit or a banana or something like that, just to give me a little bit of energy and a little bit of, sh- of sugar. But afterwards, your body is still in that mode for quite a long time. So it's often very difficult. If I train in really cold environments, I normally eat once a day, just because when I eat too fast or yeah, not uh, too quickly after training, my body also can't accept it because it's still focusing on surviving. So I think... When I'm not training, I, of course, have a normal, yeah, vegan lifestyle. But when I'm training, it's very simplified. I eat very simple foods, especially during the day. And then at night, I really try and aim to get my nutritional value in. But yeah, that can often be very challenging. Sounds like it's uh, probably really, really hard to maintain a plus on the calorie balance. Like basically, you would be looking at a calorie deficit if you can't if you can't refuel sufficiently during season because your body pre and post exercise will will be in that state have you found any any tools or tactics to to kind of tackle that when you're on season yeah kind of supplementing with with uh, more nutritional which nutritional smoothies that are very easy to digest i eat a lot of bananas they are very easy to digest so really focusing on on easy to digest foods And then in one meal, try to really pack in the nutritional value. But for me, normally I gain weight before my season starts. And last year I found that actually that was a very smart way of doing it, to have a bit of a buffer, which makes me often feel very uncomfortable <laughs> in off-season. But I can see how that yeah, could be, yeah. But I also know that's hugely beneficial because if I don't have any fat, on my body, the cold is much, much harder because your body needs fuel. So yeah, I'm starting to be okay with not having a six pack. In, <laughs> so, uh, so you need a bulking <laughs> season, essentially when you're off yeah, season? Yeah, I would, and would almost say so, maybe, yeah. But I'm kind of still figuring that out as well because this is not something actually people do competitively. So I have to figure it out as I go. The person who set the world record a few years ago, she kind of also set it out of a hobby. So this is not a known sport. I also struggle with getting advice from people because if you, you can ask swimmers for their routines, you can ask swimmers for what they do, you can ask freedivers for what they do, but they don't have necessarily this cold exposure so the energy deficit that i have from the cold is not something they can directly relate to they just have the energy that get burns throughout the exercise right because it must be an entirely different sport yeah like like in a pool or even in open waters compared to uh, the extreme temperatures that yeah. you're exposing your body to. And it's the more I start looking into extreme swimmers that do like the ice miles and sometimes even uh, the extreme ice miles, which are on altitude or anything like that, they all say you need to have a buffer on your body to be able to do it. Scientifically, you need to have that buffer. And even though I'm just figuring it out as I go, I already found that 
if I don't have a buffer, at least of a few, maybe five or six kilos, my season becomes really exhausting because I find that I need more rest days to refeed and to redo yeah, what I do and have less training days. So, yeah, I think it's really structuring. It's not a known sport, so it's really figuring it out as I go, I would say. Even the science relating to cold exposure is still very much developing and in, in a very kind of preliminary state, it seems. Like you were just telling me that there are many hypotheses that are being disputed, if not even overthrown, uh, when it comes to the accumulation of brown fat, for example. Yeah, I think the science out there is very, very new. And yeah, I would almost not dare to say the science is the truth. It's an hypothesis. Yeah, uh, at, at this point, to our listeners yeah. who are not familiar, uh, can you briefly describe uh, the hypothesis of brown or so-called healthy fat uh, within the body and the accumulation of that? So within the Wim Hof Method and within the, the research behind the Wim Hof Method, there has been a lot of research done on uh, brown fat activation. Brown fat is the fat that babies have to keep them warm. It's fat, in contrary to the white fat that we have, it's fat that has more mitochondria in it. So they can yeah, use energy more efficiently. So it was said that there's brown fat that gets released when, or not released, it kind of gets made when you do cold exposure, especially here in between your shoulder blades, helps keeping you warm. And now they kind of shifted from having brown fat as a theory to having the intracellular muscles, like the muscles between your ribs, right. uh, actually being the reason why you're able to keep warm. Huh. So, so the it, growth of those muscles, you mean? Or Yeah, just the muscles between your ribs, they make sure that your uh, core stays warm. Right. And it doesn't have anything to do with the brown fat. But again, this is also just a theory that they're still not really sure about what exactly brown fat, white fat, how it exactly gets made and used within the human body. We know kids have it. We know adults kind of lose it. And they found it in some adults, but not in others. But now they found in Wim that he uses these muscles a lot to keep him warm as well. So there are many theories and hypotheses out there that they just don't know. They just really don't not yet know what is the ultimate truth and what is the ultimate reason how we keep warm when we are cold and yeah how that influences our pain perception and our pH level in our body. They just, it's very new science. And I think we have to wait a few more years to, to get final answers on how exactly, yeah, this, this works, this system works within us. We're very much on the frontier there, it seems. And uh, the fun thing I find about Wim as a personality is mm -hmm. also that he is a very intuitive in, in the way he speaks about his experiences. Of course, he has some, he ha must have some underlying theories, but it seems as though he's being, or he's at least portrayed as this kind of a, 
person who is constantly being researched and, and put into extreme conditions with scientists from from universities yeah. and, and we're just kind of you know like trying to see through him and trying to understand what's going on with him and others who are practicing cold exposure who are doing these extreme sports but for athletes like you it's a very much the same case actually uh, that it is for alpinists and for other people who are who are pushing the limits in extreme conditions there is very little science that it, we can have any certain any certainty in terms of how the body adapts to these extreme environments. It, it seems to do that in terms of, like, for example, for me, it's really, really sobering and a really humbling feeling understanding how the body adapts to high altitude and the lack of oxygen. And it's incredible when on the first day of arriving at 4,000 meters in the base camp, feeling completely exhausted, uh, just carrying your ordinary backpack and going from there up until up until several thousands of meters of ascent when your body is uh, adapting to the height. And, and there are several theories behind that too. And seems like those are being rewritten uh, <laughs> Tom, every, Tom again, every yes. other year. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it seems like all of these extreme realms are still very much realms that we are trying to understand more and more. But athletes like uh, people pushing the limits like you and me just need to go with the best guesses and, and yeah. sharing these experiences I'm glad you're also doing this because th <laughs> this is also also a service to others who come afterwards and, and, and to the research in this field. So I think it's very exciting and more than fitting into the theme of the Biohacker Summit that we are, we are also <laughs> attending here. Yeah. Where can people find out more about your challenge, about the movie that you just made that we discussed <laughs> in, in, the, in the beginning of the podcast where you're essentially walking on the bottom of a frozen lake as well as your mission and your business of helping people and spreading your gift? So my personal social media handles are all just Kiki Bosch. Yeah, when people type that in, they'll find it. <laughs> Kiki Bosch, that's yeah. B-O-S-C-H. Yes, that's true. And, and with a Kiki with a K? K-I-K-I. -K -I, yes. It's very easy. <laughs> and my business, especially the events that I do business-wise, that's on disturbthecomfort.com. So just, yeah, Disturb the Comfort. And then I would say the film that will be uh, posted on my social media as well or on my personal website, which is kikibosh.com or on my Instagram handles. There will be links linking to that because I'm not really sure yet where it will be uh, screened because maybe we're doing a tour, maybe not. So it's all very exciting. It just, yeah, got screened for the first time yesterday. So now we're kind of waiting on how and when to when that gets, yeah, in front of the public eye. Incredible. Can't wait to see it. Kiki Bush, thank you so much for this inspiring and deeply meaningful discussion. I wish you all the best for the Himalayas, for the deep journeys underwater and deep within, and also with your mission to help help people around the world share these lessons and discover these these deep journeys in their own lives, becoming more thriving people through that. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And uh, to our listeners, you can find the show notes as usual at amberdite.com slash podcast. Uh, we'll be putting the show notes as well as some of the topics and the links that we discussed, as well as uh, links to Kiki's profiles, as well as her coaching and other missions. Thank you so much for joining us. Simo and Kiki signing out. 
Thanks for listening to the Amber Knight Superhero Podcast. Please check out the links, show notes, and other episodes at amberknight.com slash podcast. That's A-M-B-R-O-N-I-T-E dot com slash podcast. Thanks again, and catch you in the next episode.